4: Welcome to Wood Talk Online Radio, for woodworkers, by woodworkers. Now here are three guys that are actually under the illusion that woodworking is cool. Mark, Matt, and Shannon.
3: It's episode 95 for April 12th, 2012. On today's show, we're answering your emails and voicemails. Once again, we actually have voicemails today. And uh, we're going to cover a bunch of different topics. So here they are very briefly. When to change your respirator cartridges, basement woodworking and the impact on HVAC. Strategies concerning beading on a drawer front, polyurethane flammability, good woods to practice your planing, ebony species for green and green work, and cutting bevel angles exceeding 45 degrees. Uh, But before we get to all that uh, silly stuff, Matt, you want to tell them how they can get in touch with
5: us? Absolutely. As always, there's a few different ways you can uh, reach out and touch us or or leave a voice Mm. that's not just the one in my head, because that's (laughs) what I thought you were talking about. I'm like, how did you know? All these questions going on, but we have. Uh, if you want to leave a comment, a question, or a suggestion about something that you're going to hear in today's show, or maybe something you'd like to hear on an upcoming episode, like one of the questions from the voicemails we'll have today, you can email us at woodtalkonline at gmail dot com, or you can call and leave us a voicemail at six two three two four two five one eight zero. You can even Skype us at woodtalkonline Online. Or you can check out our individual sites at dot com, and renaissancewoodworker.com. And especially, go ahead and look for us on the forum at woodtalkonline.com. I dare you. You probably won't see us. We're very good at camouflaging ourselves in there. But take a gander if you will. So with that said, let's go ahead and we've got a lot to cover today. I say, Ooh, you want to jump out of the bench and get that out of the way real quick? Or what, um, you want to jump into something more fun? I would like to jump on my bench. That sounds fun to me. I think your bench actually going be able to handle I know, I know <laughs> Shannon's <laughs> would. I mean, Ash, seriously.
3: <laughs> Shannon's yeah. got a big Ash, that's for sure.
5: No, his <laughs> bench, happen. silly.
3: I oh, <laughs> had to say it. <laughs> oh, it's an old joke. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I actually did finish my bench, uh, which was uh, uh, quite an accomplishment. I wound up putting up the last few coats of tried and true varnish oil on it which is a whole other story. I don't want to get off on a tangent on that but I wasn't <laughs> wasn't really happy with the finish um, but overall the bench is done. It's complete and it's, uh, it's earled up and ready to go for the first project so I'm pretty excited about that.
5: Oh, I hope you documented it. I don't know if you managed to break the camera out and uh, yes. try to film any of it. I was thinking about it because once in a while it's nice to film
3: what you do and, and show right. it to people and stuff like that. But, um, uh, yeah, I Instead of did.
0: just, quote, accidentally centering it in the background of your Facebook photo. I
3: got accused of
0: that, and that was
3: not <laughs> on purpose. I'm telling you. Yeah. yeah what am- do you guys think about this little <laughs> stool bench? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, it's kind of hard to avoid. It takes up such a huge portion of the shop. The thing is massive. Um, but you know, the, the cool thing I'm looking forward to is actually moving on to the first project and it's going to be a a project for the free site. And I've gotten a lot of requests over the years to make that little sitting bench that was in the, it was the beginning of the old introduction. And I've gotten a number of emails just over the years like, Hey, when are you going to build that on the show? Well the the story behind that is it was a prototype when I had first moved to Arizona there was a swap meet here and I was like I need to come up with something you know relatively easy to make that I could batch out nice and small doesn't take a lot of material and maybe I could sell it for you know 30 or 40 bucks so I made that but it was one of those things that quickly it became obvious that this was not uh, something that could be batched out. This was unrealistic to think that I could do this in in, in you know mass quantities to to make it worth uh, selling for that price. So I just you know canned the idea. I wound up giving the little footstool to uh, my mother in law, and she's had it for the last you know five or six years. And then as the whole DDoS attack thing came in, I started thinking what what can I do to kind of just like I mean I don't to pay to pay people back for all of the support. And then, um, you know, we just were thinking about it and it was like, you know what, let's do a project that people have been asking for for a while and just throw that on the on the free site as a, a thank you and not, not a sponsored message at all, Just, um, just that one project specifically because people helped out so much um so i'm sorry to the people who helped out who don't want to see that project but <laughs> <laughs> too bad people you're getting what you paid for uh, but that's what uh, that's what's happening um so yeah so it was kind of a it's kind of fun that's going to be the the first project that i wind up doing on the new bench
5: well that's good to hear because actually my samantha has always asked me about that she's okay she's only watched your show once or twice because just anything woodworking pretty much puts her into a fit and she kind of passes <laughs> she out gets from the it chills. exactly she's like, oh no you do <laughs> so but she's always seen that and she's always asked me she goes when are you gonna ask mark about that i'm like well i don't want to because here's a little secret i think he bought it but <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine if i like filmed my introduction and just
3: had things that i purchased like i'm just i'm not saying i built this i'm just saying it's nice furniture <laughs>
5: I always wanted it to be like one of those pop-up <laughs> video things like on VH1 behind the scenes. Right. And it's like, you know, the Wood Whisperer ones, and they start popping up. Mark bought this, pretended to buy that.
3: <laughs> uh,
5: that would be funny. Uh, but, yeah, that's going to be the idea. first project.
3: So, um, and yeah, and Shannon was giving me crap about it because I said that it was the angled tenons. Uh, Are a little bit tricky, and he's like, "What do you mean? You just use a
5: handsaw? (laughs) Handsaw school? Oh, oh, you, you Neanderthal woodworker? (laughs) But yeah, so it is actually stirring up trouble.
3: It's it's a little trickier than it appears because the legs are at an angle, and I mean, it might not be bad to talk about how you might approach something like that. But you've got a flat top, and the bottom is flat as well, but you've got the legs coming in at an angle. So you either angle the mortise." and keep the tenon straight uh, in which case you still have to angle the shoulder of the tenon to match you know, the angle that you're at or you angle the tenon and still need to angle the shoulders but keep the mortise in the, the top straight. Uh, you know, and If you actually sit there and think about how would you accomplish that? Now of course if you're you know, good with your uh, hand tools you could do that easily enough with a, with a saw but I think it, even on an angle you got to admit, Shannon, it does take a little bit of skill to be able to make a nice crisp angled shoulder for an angled tenon like that, um, sure. Just admit it. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> no, no, sure. I think actually the hardest
0: part's the angled mortise.
3: Um, well, <laughs> that's the thing, and that's why I'm I'm definitely going to go with a straight mortise. Just. I, don't, I just don't feel like dealing with an angled mortise, and if you're going, if you're making an angled shoulder, <laughs> domino, right? I mean, I was thinking that too, but that's too easy. <laughs> that it, the domino was just too easy for for a, a project like that. It really does show why that thing is pretty cool. But think of all the fun comments you'll get. Uh, I'll make Festival yeah. happy. The domino, oh, easy for you. Blah blah. All right, you
5: well, know, <laughs> listen to this conversation. I know a great project that Shannon can be building at the same time is a giant shit stir. <laughs> and so seem to be doing a very good job of it right now.
3: <laughs> oh, yes. He does excel at that. Um like poke it with a stick. Exactly. So enough about me, my bench, and my <laughs> angled tenons that are harder than they look. Uh, what about you, Matt? What do you got going on?
5: Well, that's really simple. I was on vacation. I got and a TV. I, yeah, I got a TV. <laughs> um, I, I mailed a $5 snow globe to our house for $70. <laughs> um, no, the, the big thing for me, actually, I do have to say this. Um, for those of you, such as yourself, Shannon, the, you know, how you, you enjoy going to Williamsburg, and there's all the reenactors, and yourself actually, you you really un, you know know hand tools and 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 what what you can do with them and everything. I have to say, I'm a little. Disappointed with the uh, Imagineers at Disney, I went on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, and at one point, as you're being funneled into the actual ride itself, you walk past this little area where it's supposed to be a makeshift, uh, a a boat rights area, and they're making a boat, and the hand planes that are on there, I said, oh, wow, look, wooden bodied, what the hell is that? that. And rather than being like, you know, like I'm assuming it must be like the 1500s, maybe 1600s or something like that. They had a plane that I'm pretty sure didn't really come around until maybe like 1800s, 1900s. Of course, I was the only one because when I pointed it out, I said, look at that. Do you see the iron on that thing? That would not have existed. And then the Imagineer came up behind and just shoved me further on in the line. So did he say, shut up, Shannon? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, aren't you with working with that guy from uh, uh, the Renaissance? Worker, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sir, you need to come with us. Cuz the nice. flogging post in the next thing is not make believe.
2: <laughs>
5: <laughs> so that but that that's really the the only thing I have. Other than that, I have a few projects that I probably should be starting on, but technically um I have another uh 24 hours of vacation time mm. before I have to start thinking about returning to work. So, um I'm just going to do that.
0: Nice. You know, while we're on that subject, I don't think pirates wore that much eyeliner either. Hmm. Johnny I Depp did, so that's either. for sure.
5: <laughs> he, didn't need it. he doesn't need a movie to do that.
0: <laughs> true. <It's like>
5: <laughs> and I'm pretty sure when they raided a town, it wasn't just the, um, the, the roasted chicken that they were going after uh, as they depict throughout the ride. There was a few of those. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure it's the other way around, not the woman chasing with the pitchfork. I don't know, man. Maybe
3: if it was like a Sam's Club rotisserie chicken, that might be worth raiding a town for. Ooh. They, see, they're just passing up sponsorship opportunities left and right there. <laughs> exactly.
5: <laughs> so that, that's it for me. How about you, Shannon? You must have had something going on.
0: Well, yeah, I started a, started a shaker clock. Um, that's actually for the hand tool school. So I try not to talk too much about those because I don't want it to be hand tool school, hand tool school. Wah!
3: I thought you were saying um, shaker clocks, but okay.
0: Yeah, well, that too. <laughs> um <laughs> And, you know, actually, since Matt brought it up, I was in Williamsburg recently, and uh, I was convinced by one of the interpreters there to try a spring pole lathe. So I actually started on it last night. And uh, one of the the reasons that people really hate me is because I have just unbelievable access to lumber. So I I brought home some salvaged offcuts that have been sitting in the back of our yard for a while. So I'm going to make my spring pole lathe out of a... out of a uh, an African mahogany alternate, <laughs> because, well, I mean, they're like sitting out in the, in the rain and, and the sun and they're weathered and they're 12 quarter pieces that by the time I remove all the checking and everything, they'll probably be about, you know, two inches thick. But so I need to say, I'm making a spring pole lathe out of an African mahogany.
5: Nice. And, and, and your fellow coworkers there at the lumber yard still kind of give you that look like, dude, he's picking through the garbage. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I get weirder looks for that. Um, that and when
0: I show up with a handsaw and start cutting <laughs> the lumber to put in my car, they'll like, dude,
3: you've got issues. <laughs> but, That's pretty awesome. So, uh, like, have you used one before, a spring pole lathe? I haven't. <clears throat> I've always
0: wanted to try it, but, yeah. you know, they, they don't have them. Well, I mean, generally you can't can't use them in Williamsburg. Um, I was actually pretty fortunate this year that it was just dead quiet when we were down there. It was total off-season. So I actually got to use their treadle, but they don't have a spring pole set up anywhere. And even at the Stepping Stone Museum, we have uh, a Victorian. We have mostly Victorian-era tools, so that barns like – barnes treadle lathe that you see roy underhill use just a gigantic iron flywheel Yeah. Uh, yeah but no no spring pole and i've always wanted to try it but at the same time i've always been of well you know why would i do that when i could build a treadle lathe and have continuous motion and this guy at the joiner shop he's like
3: i was trained on a spring pole lathe you just gotta try it you you can't For those who aren't familiar, can you explain the difference between a spring pole lathe and a a treadle lathe? And and in general, what, because I mean, someone who isn't that into it might have no idea what you're talking about. So, Sure,
0: sure. Well, um, I mean, a treadle lathe is really no different from a modern day lathe. It spins the, it's what's called a continuous motion lathe. The wood spins, you know, towards you uh, constantly. And it's powered mostly by the weight of the freewheel, uh, the flywheel at the bottom. Mm -hmm. As the flywheel turns, it turns a Uh, uh, either a a belt or a a band that then powers the lathe. It's basically the same as a modern-day lathe, except there's a motor down on the bottom that's attached to the other end of the belt. This way, it's attached to a a treadle, which you push with your foot. A spring pole lathe doesn't go continuously around. It's got um, a spring pole, uh, some sort of flexible pole. Sometimes it's attached to the rafters. Sometimes it's attached off the back of the lathe. There's just any number of places that has a rope attached to the end of that spring pole. And the rope comes down and wraps around the actual workpiece. And the other end of the rope comes down and attaches to a treadle. So when you push on that treadle, it pulls the workpiece in a circle, generally, sometimes two times around. And that flexes that spring pole. And then the spring pole flexes. Back and it pulls the wood the other direction, so it's it doesn't spin continuously in the same direction. Mm-hmm. It moves forward about two rotations and then it springs back two rotations. So you're actually only cutting on those forward um, spins. Um, and you know, you think about that and you're like, well, that's entirely in a You know, it's totally inefficient you're not cutting half the time and if it was just spending with you the whole time and i've always been of that mindset i've always been you know amongst the neanderthals you know we have on our own we even have our own clicks where we have to make fun of the real <laughs> knuckle draggers you know right, right there's well no i'm a modern neanderthal i have veritas planes you know and then there's the guy that's like i only use wooden planes and then there's the guy that's like screw planes i use hatchets you know <laughs> (laughs) Those various clicks. So there's that treadle lathe click and the spring pole lathe click. And I've always been one to cast dispersions upon the spring pole lathe guys. But, you know, I'm going to give it a shot. And Roy Underhill's got this design. Well, technically, it's a 1700-something design from some guy in France. But Roy's kind of adapted it. He actually built it on the Woodwright shop. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many seasons ago. It was a while ago. He offers a class now at the Woodwright shop, and it's in several of his books. And it's, it's really compact and it's really easy to make, you know, go to Home Depot and buy two by lumber and slap it together from a couple of boards and a mop handle. That's your spring pole. (laughs) Um, so it's, it's a very cool, simple design. And I thought, you know, what the heck? I, I think honestly, I, I mean, I've got a, a lot of stuff going on with other projects for, um, my, my site. So this is kind of an experiment. Um, I plan on building a treadle lathe actually for the the hand tool school later on, but I thought wouldn't it be cool to build a spring pole and at least try it sure. before I knock it? You know, sure. yeah. so it should be fun. It could be a horrible experiment, and I could still be <laughs> a treadle lay aficionado and say, "Bring hey,
3: Paul, stupid." That yeah, it sounds cool to me. You know, I actually used my powermatic lay the other day to turn a tool handle, and every couple of seconds, I'd lift my leg up just to kind of make myself feel cool.
5: <laughs> yeah, I'd give you that sense. So, my thing with it is, is the whole thing of itch. like,
3: <laughs> yeah.
5: you were just, anyways. Um, my whole thing with it is just simply the fact of trying to get that rhythm. I have absolutely no rhythm whatsoever, so I know I'd always have the tool in the wrong spot when it would be <laughs> going back in the other direction. Yeah. Every other time, the tool would probably be ripped out of my hands and flying across the <laughs> the area. Um, I did just a quick search while you were talking. There's uh, several different uh, videos at, at YouTube. If you just type in how to oh, make yeah. a spring pole lathe or just spring pole lathe, uh, so if people actually want to see this, uh, would, you did a great job of, of describing it, but you know, if you just want to check it out, there's definitely quite a few on there to to get a better visualization of it. But yeah, it's, that, that it's whole- tough.
0: There's no question that coordination, um, the the <laughs> little video that um well actually my wife took the video when we were in Williamsburg and you know it's like you push on the treadle and the wheel starts turning and then if you don't get the timing right you actually turn the wheel in the opposite direction you're like, <laughs> don't <laughs> but um you know the the Victorian and the Barnsley that we've used at the museum I mean that's it's like a bicycle it's yeah. got two pedals you sit down and you pedal I mean that's actually really easy you forget that you're pedaling um, the continual motion of, of a treadle lathe or even a spring pole that takes a little while, and I'm going to have some real learning curve to to overcome. But you know, it'll be fun. Nice. See,
5: the other the other problem I have with it is the way that you've described both of them. They involve work, burning and,
3: calories. And... Yeah,
5: <laughs> I don't want to lose this body. You know, being stout and fluffy at the same time is <laughs> that's a hard thing to come across. We'll have to we'll have to make you
3: a a Gilligan lathe. That's why you can sit on a bicycle while someone turns.
5: No, that's all I spend quality time with the kids. Hey, (laughs) daddy needs the lathe. Get on the bike. Start pedaling, kid.
3: (laughs) All right. Well, let's move from there into some iTunes reviews. Normally, um, this is something we reserve for the end of the show, and I always forget to do it, so I moved it all the way to the front to to give a few people a little bit of a shout-out because they gave us a five-star review in iTunes. Uh, So If you want to do that, head over to iTunes and look up our show in the iTunes store, and you could leave a review for us. Uh, just a few of these here. Um, East Bay Sponger says, effing rocks. Not not my words, his. <laughs> uh, these guys are rock stars of the woodworking world. They bring a cool and hip edge to the craft. Great stuff. Thank you, East Bay I Sponger. Yes, thank you. You sure Peter. he listens
0: to the show? Cool and
3: uh, hip. Maybe not. Uh, this. Uh, let's see, J.D. Brown says, have to say this podcast is great. I'm currently working my way through all the old content. I'm up to uh, podcast number 75 now. The content is great and understandable for all levels of woodworkers. I have to say that if you like turning wood into things or even the idea of it, then this is the podcast for you. Keep it up, guys. Uh, let's see. A couple more good ones. This is my favorite. Oh, this is from Tall Installer. This is my favorite podcast, so you can probably tell where this review will lean. I found the Wood Whisperer website a couple of years ago and started listening to Wood Talk Online about a year ago. Since then, I've gone back and listened from the beginning and I think I've heard them all now. Mark and Matt did a great job, but Shannon is a huge boon to the show. I think the show is complete with his addition. The topics are relevant. The hosts are entertaining. The content informative. You're going to ask for a better woodworking talk woodworking talk show around or something like that. Check it out. You'll be glad you did. Uh, this one is actually my favorite. This one's funny. Three amigos meet the three musketeers in the woodshop. If I were into food, I would want to hear a show with Alton Brown, John Besch, and Guy Fieri. If I were into conservative politics, I want to hear a show with Beck, Rush, and Hannity. If I were into football, I'd want to hear a show with Peyton, Eli, and Archie Manning. But I'm into woodworking, so I listen to Mark, Matt, and Shannon. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, they're smart, funny guys who really know their craft, and they hardly ever geek out so much that you won't get a good tip or the funny joke. So thanks for those great reviews. Even though most of it is uh, BS, we do appreciate it.
5: <laughs> Very oh, flattering. That last, one, I, that last one I think we should have put on a T-shirt. Um, I think it should start in the front. It'll probably finish in the back. And then you have to buy a second one where you get the rest of it and finish. <laughs> you nice. can buy leggings. We'll have leggings.
3: <laughs> ooh, so, a onesie.
5: Just
0: a big
3: union ooh. suit. Oh, awesome. oh. wow, the onesies the do look comfortable. I see my son wearing them all the time, and they do look quite comfortable.
0: Yeah, uh, totally jealous.
3: Oh, yeah. All right. So let's jump into the Around the Web segment. We're going to throw out a few uh, links here for you. We're not going to talk about them much because we've got a lot of questions to go through from you guys. So uh, who wants to start them off? Whoever put them in there, how about
5: that? Uh, sure. Uh, I don't know who the, where the fine woodworking April Fools came from because uh, I I didn't even know there was one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? I was looking for the Lee Valley one. I guess I completely maybe missed I it. Th- maybe I put well, that. I, I, prob- I might have put that in there a couple of weeks ago when it came um, out. Yeah. Okay. Around oh, around
3: April first, maybe, huh? Well,
5: the yeah, the, the joke's on us apparently because
3: <laughs> because, <laughs> because it wasn't that funny.
5: Yeah, Oops. exactly. Oh, well, I mean, not.
3: really, the 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 April Fool's thing, especially in the woodworking world, is just like. I mean, the the <laughs> tools, like Lee Valley's uh, tools, the the their Photoshop work and stuff like that, those are good. I enjoy right. seeing those. But anyone who kind of goes through the whole thing, you know, like, knit, like the knitting podcast type thing, <laughs> yeah. you know, th- that's unlikely to happen ever again because it's just not that funny. Yeah, because I, I, I can't carry an accent.
5: <laughs> right. Although it's we should, part you part know, just in case people missed it, we definitely pushed it out there quite a bit. uh congr- Happy anniversary to both of you from April Fool's Day because that was when the that's first right. ever – uh, right. Yeah, Wood Talk Online came out. So and how that's many probably years the was longest it? lasting joke. Uh, was that 2007? Wow. So that's, yeah. is that five years already? We had our fifth
3: year anniversary. Yeah. We didn't even like do anything.
5: <laughs> we didn't even get together. <laughs> nobody got us dinner. What? Um, yeah. Just like real so, life all over. It, I probably should have bought you guys dinner.
0: Well, true, okay, yeah. we'll take that. Yeah,
3: uh, we, um, well, we were talking about those Dorito tacos. I was going to say I'll send you a gift certificate. <laughs> What's that cost? To taco like Bell? fifty cents. So. <laughs> Good for one Dorito taco. Okay, so
5: <laughs> moving on. Uh, a right.
3: couple, couple things for WYA. So let's hit those. That's
5: right. Yeah, registration is now open and ready for both locations. If I do remember right, and that is Cincinnati and Pasadena, California. Pasadena. Uh, see what uh, the Pasadena one is October. Uh, oh my gosh, I don't 12th, have. Enough. I think. That sounds right. And uh, yeah, so but anyways, the link will be in here. Go check it out if you want to find out more information about it. There's some really, really good, uh, interesting uh, lecturers coming up for the Pasadena one. That's the one that I am fighting really Dude, hard. It's going to be so good. There. You don't yeah. want to miss
3: it. It's going to be so awesome.
5: I, because it's such a different flavor from the lecturers compared to the past. I mean, I, I, WIA, I've, I've gone every year. I've enjoyed it. But the Pasadena one just definitely looks like it's just – it is that taco flavor. <laughs> well, you go to the
3: East Coast one, it's all snooty. You walk in and they're like, Mr.
5: Vandalist, here's your tea. Yeah. Have yeah. a seat. Like, I don't want any more seafood. I want something <laughs> with a little kick. And we'll yes. go from there. Right. So uh so we'll have the link in there for 2012 Woodworking America registration. Also, uh our good friend Aaron ended up putting up the buddy tracker spreadsheet. This is cool. Uh, yeah, and so this is a nice way, as you mentioned, we'll have a link actually to his his blog where he has it up there, kind of explains what it is and everything. But this is a really neat way to find out where everybody is so you can find out who's going and uh, w- what classes they're planning on taking. And it's a it's a really nice way also to find out if maybe – there's another reason why you don't want to go because this particular jerkhole. <laughs> Mark's is going to be <laughs> in Pasadena, so don't go there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're like, well, in that case, my mind is made up. I am going to Cincinnati. <laughs>
3: that that that, that does not You know, there's actually, um, it's kind of neat to look at the spread. There's not that many people on there. I think there's only like 27 or 28 entries, but um, it does look like it is swaying a little more heavily toward Pasadena so far.
0: Yeah, I haven't
5: entered mine yet, but that's what I'll be entering. So. What? Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's it's the new <clears throat> flavor. I mean, it definitely is. It it's the one to check out. Am I, mean, I am I actually going to
3: meet Shannon in person? I know. God forbid. Jeez, oh, wow. There's going to be <laughs> a black
5: hole. I can see it now, man. <laughs> the universe is going to explode.
3: Yeah, everything's just going to implode on itself. Okay, moving on. So we got a couple of links from people on Facebook. Some cool stuff. Uh, Dave on Facebook shared a picture of a woodworking uh, project that was a Nintendo controller, an actual working old school NES controller um, oh, with giant wooden cool. buttons and everything and the whole thing works. So I'll put a link up for that so you could check that out. And Nathan um, sent me a link to a friend of his, a buddy of his, has a website called baychico.com and this dude just does amazing like some of the stuff it's hard to describe but it's sculptural work like hollow forms bending and I guess he does a lot of CNC work as well incorporating into his uh, his design so uh, we'll put the link there for that but it's j- baychico.com so that uh, looked pretty cool and someone put a link to a Star Trek trying to out dork me yeah, I,
5: I I couldn't help it. As soon as I saw the other one about the Nintendo controller, I'm like, oh, dude, <laughs> the Enterprise. And it looks like it's even like in, in, in the, the dry dock. Would it be dry dock in space? Uh... I don't know. Space doc. A, the air doc? Space doc. There you go. Anyways, it, it, and it's a, it's God, a nice picture. Samantha geez. found it and she pointed it out to me. I know. I know. Just, I, I got to turn in my nerd badge. This is really bad. Mm, it's
0: cool. <laughs> Isn't though? this the one where there's like a whole string of comments about somebody? I was like, well, actually, it's more of a, you know, blah, blah, blah era. uh era. Picard era. Enterprise. Yeah,
5: I, I think there I, actually I've seen is this
0: posted in a couple of places, and there's one that gets into this long conversation about, well, is that really, you know, this version of the Enterprise, or is it more of the Enterprise C or the
5: Enterprise A? And it's <laughs> very funny. If this was on the wall behind Picard, would it be in the middle of the line, or would it be right directly behind him? <laughs> <laughs>
3: nice, uh, nerd range.
0: <clears throat> hey, one one other thing, just real quick. Um, in relation to that buddy tracker, Wilbur Pan at his, uh, blog giant Cypress actually put up a blog post on that illustrates the overlap in classes between Cincinnati and Pasadena. What's at Cincinnati and what's not at Pasadena and vice versa. It's actually really helpful because there is, there is a fair amount of overlap, which is kind of cool, I think. But, um, at the same time, there are some presenters who won't be in one place or the other. So, uh, Check out Giant Cypress. I'll I'll drop a link in the, in the show notes, Mark, so that we can uh, find that. But it's kind of helpful if you're still on the fence a little.
3: Well, you know, maybe next week we'll even talk a little bit. Uh, you know, it, hopefully we'll have some good information on the the different presentations and, and uh, presenters, and we'll be able to kind of just throw it out there so people can. You know, make a decision which one they want to do
5: right. sure. Hey, what one more we should mention before we we get away from around the web. Of course, since we're talking about woodworking in America, some of you, there is a third option this year, too, which is the fine woodworking uh, event going on, live event going on that is on new, there, too. yeah.
3: we kind of uh, glossed over that a little bit, but that is on the list, um, <laughs> okay, just uh, on the buddy tracker list, right? So
5: right, I think so. Yeah. yeah. so yeah, so if you're gonna be heading to that because I know for the vast majority of us it's it's one or the other or or the other depending on if you want to yeah. go to all three. One or the other so, radio I might or... actually get to that. Um, it's, it's still up in the air, but my sister-in-law lives like 20 minutes
0: from there. So it's nice. kind of an excuse to, to drop my wife off.
3: Totally. And Hey, <laughs> if, uh, cool. if anybody That's... does any of these, definitely leave us a voicemail too, after the fact and let us know what you thought. Cause I'm sure we will have a WIA follow-up uh, mm-hmm. after each event. Uh, and especially, um, you know, the ones we go to certainly. Uh, but we would love to hear your opinions on them because it always generates some good conversation about whether or not these things are worth you know, spending money and actually flying out to go to.
5: Yep. Yeah, definitely. I mean they they cost us pretty much as a, a nice piece of equipment. So if you're <laughs> yeah, going to make a an nice investment, TV. you know, a nice, yeah, a nicer TV. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right, Shannon, you want to
3: hit that first email and then uh, after <laughs> that we'll hit the voicemails. Okay, listener emails.
0: Shannon reads. Oh, wait, I wasn't supposed to read that.
3: Don't <laughs> oh. italicize, dummy. Don't read it.
0: <laughs> Walks off stage left. Okay. <laughs> smiles. Okay, this is from Chris Landy, and Chris reads. Chris says, I have a question regarding respirators. I have the 3M 7500 Series Reusable Half Face Piece Model 7503. Wow, that's mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. Um, basically it's the one that Mark recommends way back when his, when on his video dust in time, I use it for heavy sanding and finishing in my tiny shop, but I'm not sure how often I should swap out the filters. How do I know when they are spent and no
5: longer doing their job?
0: Hmm. No, I have have a question within a
5: question. Actually, um, Mark, when you came up with the titles of your earlier videos, did you laugh to yourself when you came up with them, or (laughs) generally, if I find it funny,
3: I say that's good enough. Now, actually, I I pass all of my uh, comedic efforts through Nicole, and she either tells me, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, or don't even think about it. Um, Perhaps this is one that I forgot to ask her opinion on.
5: (laughs) Well, it still works for me, actually. (laughs) We're good.
3: Um, So you know what? This is this is one of those things that really kind of depends on usage, right? I mean, if you're so, we're supposed uh, to
0: replace those
3: filters. uh, Well, same thing too. (laughs) It's like you know, I just love that (laughs) smell of wood dust. So you know, why should I get rid of it? Um, Yeah, I mean, it just depends on how much you use them. And I think probably every six months probably isn't a bad idea. Uh, just to get yourself on some sort of a, a pattern. But again, it just depends on how often you use it. If you're finishing every day, you probably don't want to wait six months to change the organic filter cartridges. Um, but you know, one good indicator, and I think we, we talked about this uh, over email, uh, one good indicator is if you start to really smell the things that you're trying to block out, that's right. usually a good indicator that you might yeah. want to replace.
0: Smells are particulate in nature. Mm-hmm. Right. Think about yeah. that next time you're in a restroom.
3: Mm. Yes,
0: mm. yes. So absolutely. your
3: your poop smell air is getting up in my nose. Your poop particles are going up my nostrils. <laughs> yeah, that... my, it's my kids have to say
5: it. I mean. My kids have the worst feet and I always keep them like, dude, I'm halfway across the room and it feels like you got them right in my nose. Get it out of here, kid. <laughs> so, but yeah, it was funny because my first thought was, well, once you get to the point that you pass out because the oxygen's not flowing through the filter, <laughs> you know, that might be a good thing too. But yeah, for sure. The one that I always re- I always remember is that we had the conversation about the, the smell. So once the smell hits you, then more than likely that is the time that you really start to think about replacing it. And ever since then, I'm always afraid now I have super sensitive knows? You ever know something like you're like, Do you smell that? What's that? I don't know. What is that? You know, and you go from there. Well,
3: and everything in the shop kind of smells like wood eventually. You know, even if it doesn't have a whole bunch of dust well, on it, it just kind of gets that wood shop odor to it. Right. Now, so
0: or when you leave the um the respirator kind of face up on the countertop, <laughs> right. and it It's a fine collection of dust. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you put yeah. it on, and it's like well, I just kind of defeated the
3: purpose there, didn't I? Yeah, <laughs> totally. Well, Chris, I, I hope we sort of answered your question. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure months. that I did. In other six words, months, we're all kind of guessing, but yeah, if it's been six months, probably not a bad idea to buy some new ones. Um, the yeah, other definitely. thing is uh, the organic ones, not something that you have to use all the time, right? So um, there are times when I am feeling frugal. I will take the organic filter cartridges out and I will actually put them in a Ziploc bag um, to, to try to you know, limit the amount of air that they get exposed to. And, and my theory, at least, is that it will extend their, their usable life.
5: Oh, look at you, Rachel Ray. Oh,
3: nice. I'm just going to put a little EVOO on this. That's my my Rachel Ray impression, which is pretty bad. Rachel Ray has been smoking for seven years. (laughs) I, I don't know. She sounds like she's got something going on there.
5: Actually, sounds like my mother-in-law, but I'm going to leave that one alone.
3: (laughs) Oh boy!
5: Yeah, I hope she doesn't listen anymore.
3: Let's tackle this next email. (laughs) Okay,
5: (laughs) all right, let's do that. Well, this next one is from Aaron Cashin, and Aaron writes and he says, "I will finally have my first shop, and it will be in the basement. The only concern I have is my HVAC equipment, which is down there. Do you have this issue, and if so, what do you recommend for keeping this thing clean?" I will have a cyclone and an air cleaner. I would appreciate any advice at this point. So, unfortunately, none of us have a basement workshop. Oh wait, no, I do. Uh-huh. It's so, almost
3: like I had you read that question on purpose. I know I, I was wondering if that's I kind of do. Next to it.
5: My garage
0: is technically on the lower level of my house, so.
5: Well, that's what I was I was going to ask you because I, I know yeah, cause yeah, you're. You you don't have any equipment out in your garage, do you? I mean, it'd be too cold it's, in your it's area. It's right
0: though. next door. It's in our laundry room, which is okay. but technically technically the center block wall in between, but the
5: doorway goes into it. So, okay. We'll so do that. Yeah. So technically, one thing I'm going to say, I'm just going to put this out there because I, I get this question quite a bit and to be quite honest with you, um, I've never had a major issue with dust affecting my my equipment whatsoever with my hvac equipment uh but one thing i did do and i, I have a video and I, I left a reference for aaron for this video and we can put this in the show notes if we want to um i did an episode somewhere along the lines of like dust in time but i think it was like just don't get dust in the house your wife will kill you was the hmm. name of my episode <laughs> and the whole idea is what what my preference was to go through and kind of dust proof as much of the uh, the ductwork as I could, and it was a matter of just taking really good duct tape uh, and and putting it on the openings, looking for any. You know, because when, when they put the equipment together, uh, sometimes if you have kind of the shoddier ones like we did, uh, they don't necessarily seal the best way. And mm. even the really good ones still, you know, there's there's areas that the, the duct work is going to have openings. So it doesn't hurt to kind of go through and seal up the duct work in your shop area and maybe even go through and fill in cracks in the overhead uh, ceiling with, you know, just like some foam spray or something, especially maybe again, where like an outlet is going to be, or I mean like a, 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 duct outlet for, you know, to actually get the heat someplace or where there's plumbing and stuff like that, because these are all little areas that the dust, believe it or not, once it gets moving in the air, and especially it's that fine stuff that you're going to find, all over the house, it, it, that's the stuff that's gonna come up through there and it's gonna collect at some point. And once the circulation gets going really nice, say the middle of winter or the middle of the hot summer when your air conditioning's going, you're gonna have this air flowing through there. Um, and you, you you won't believe where suddenly your, your dust is showing up at. So if you take a few minutes to go through, seal everything off the best you can, uh, you'll actually find that it does really help to minimize it. And when it comes to the equipment, like I said, I, I've never had a major issue with the dust accumulating in there. In fact, we've had our furnace cleaned a couple of times, and I've always waited for the guy to come up and be like, whoa, what are you doing down there? <laughs> and I have yet to have that. In fact, the, I, I asked the guy once, I'm like, you know, is there more than usual? He said, "Don't, not really. I don't know what you're doing, but huh. it's working out fine. So Good. one more thing I can recommend is if you're really, really concerned about it, the tools that you're going to be using that are going to be kicking out the most sawdust, I mean, for me, it's like my, my table saw or my bandsaw, especially my jointer or something, but ma- mainly the, the bandsaw and the table saw. I try to keep those at a distance away from the furnace, which is kind of funny because my table saw is right next to my furnace. <laughs> but I try to keep Oops. it at a point where I know when the air is being sucked in, that dust isn't right there for mm, it to be damn. sucked in. So it's a matter of just kind of pushing your equipment into key locations where it's going to minimize how much is going to be pulled in through the natural flow of the furnace. Um, and but if you're really concerned also with it getting through the house, just check the filters a little bit more frequently. You know, sometimes you'll get the newer ones where you're like, oh, you don't, you only have to replace it every three to six months or something. Yeah maybe check it every month, especially if you're doing a lot of sanding or you've been doing a lot of uh, projects down in the shop or something. It doesn't hurt to have a couple of standby ones just to take a look and see if they're starting to fill up and then replace as necessary. But yeah. other than that, we've had no major issues in the vanderless household.
3: Well, he's got a cyclone and an air cleaner in there as well. you know, So he right. should he should be pretty minimal in terms of what he's kicking up into the air in the yeah. first place. So if his system's sealed, he should probably be okay.
5: Right, and I, if anything, I think the the main dust that's going to be getting around the house probably be from you tracking it around because that's another thing. <laughs> yeah, you, you go back right.
3: into the house. I mean, after a, a full day of woodworking, you're like a dust bag, you know. Yes, yes and, you are. It's terrible.
5: Anyway, yeah, I've, w- I've watched my feet, my footprints as I'm going up the stairs, <laughs> and I'm like, "Wow, who is down here playing in the sod? <laughs> I'm alone, aren't I? <laughs> yep." All i right. just took my dog to get groomed and
0: they're like we found all these wood shavings in, in his undercarriage is that like, normal <laughs> whoops well he does find the biggest pile of shavings and plop right down in that so
3: <laughs> nice oh alex you silly dog silly dog all right so we'll move on to uh another question here from jay who goes by one in millions is is a uh, nickname he actually has been listening to all of the episodes from number one and working his way through over the past I don't know a few months maybe, and it's oh, funny because he like, he occasionally leaves comments on that episode, and it's just funny watching him go through. And he's not necessarily asking questions; he's just kind of chiming in on something he heard. Uh, but it's been funny watching him go through them all, and I <laughs> guess he finally made it to the last episode. So congratulations! Hooray! Yay! It's uh, Glad quite you're quite still a, listening. It's quite a, a torture uh, experiment there, but. All right, so he has a a multi-part question and we'll, um, you know, kind of tackle each one at a time. Um, He says he's making a jewelry box for his wife and she wants zebra wood fronts on the drawers. He says, my thought was to build the drawers out of walnut and use some shop-made veneer for the fronts with an eighth-inch wangi bead around the edge. And his first question is, how do you recommend making the 116th 16th-inch roundovers on the eighth-inch bead? So... And this is where I just want to, I wish I wrote him back to just clarify. My assumption is if he's putting a bead around the drawer, he's probably not actually just putting a little tiny thin square of wood and rounding it over. He's probably putting a trim piece around the outside and just kind of bullnosing it so it has the appearance of a bead.
0: Would you guys assume that, do? Yeah, that cock bead. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm.
3: (laughs) You thought... Something. <laughs> All right, See, um, I did that on purpose because I knew <laughs>
5: you yeah. set it up and I knock it down. I didn't know it was Adult Swim night. Um, I would have said something else.
3: But basically, I would say if he's got an eighth inch uh, thick, you know, piece of stock, a little piece of trim stock, uh, that I at least me, I would take that to the router table using the fence and just get a nice clean one sixteenth inch, nice even uh, roundover. And I mean, it's so small, you could certainly do it with hand tools. But if he's got a lot of drawers to do. There is a certain amount of irregularity that's going to happen if you if you try to accomplish this with either, you know, a little bit of sandpaper or even just a block plane. Um, you know, unless you have something very specific that makes a good fixed roundover so it's nice and consistent. I think consistency is going to be key on this. So personally, I would go with the router table router bit method.
0: Yeah, you know, I I have to agree to a certain point except for the fact that <clears throat> I'd be concerned about using wingy. Um, and he he does kind of that, get to this later yeah, on. Yeah, that his comes question. up later. Right? Um the wingy is such a open poured, somewhat splintery and fragile wood that if you're if you're dealing with such a small amount, um I, I don't know. I mean, the consistency of the router table would be kind of nice, but I wonder if just a simple scratch dock might be a little bit more delicate, a little more gentle. Oh, with um, now a 16th? I haven't routed Wingy in forever, so yeah. I am talking at my ass here. So
3: it can be um, bad, but when you're only doing a sixteenth inch roundover, there should really be no major tear out issues. Like if he's no, uh, if he's going for like an eighth or a quarter, sure, that's gonna be a problem. But I don't having worked with it quite a bit, I don't think sixteenth is, is gonna cause him much of a problem at all. Yeah. But if he's certainly got other methods of doing it, um why not try it?
5: Right yeah no i i kind of i'm I'm in the same with both of you yes, I agree um <laughs> I am yeah. to be
3: agreeing with you too. Um, one so, thing I
5: was thinking is there's there's that one router bit that's uh oh it's it's a beating bit actually rather than using the round over do that on a on a bigger thicker piece, something a little bit more controllable because i I see something like when you were describing using the router table, you like the actual one eighth inch thick and then running that over just as that strip. Or what I was thinking is like kind of a, a little bit bigger, thicker piece of the of the wenge or whatever material he's going to use, yeah. and then cutting off that bead hmm. uh, to get that effect. Huh. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, so. you know that that's true actually because he's talking about wrapping this around the drawer. Sorry, I'm thinking of an of a, an assembled drawer here, um, using a scratch stock to scratch it into the drawer once it's made. But now, if if he's just going to do a whole strip, then.
3: I'm thinking a strip what and Matt that's said. that's what I wanted to try to clarify but maybe it'll make then, it kind of that's what lead, like the rest of his questions lead me to believe that he's right. putting a, a whole strip on miter the Miter it
0: around the, yeah. either into a rabbit or something like that around the face of the drawer.
3: Exactly. So question yeah. number two goes into what Shannon was just talking about dealing with the wood itself. He says, I'm open to other dark woods for the bead because he's uh, heard that wangi splinters terribly. So I would say give the wangi a shot if it's what you want and it gives you the look you want give it a shot, see if it is going to be a problem for you and if it is, then think about some other types of woods and of course you know, the only alternative that comes to mind is something like walnut, something that's easily available and he said that the whole thing is walnut anyway so having a walnut you know, body and then have, uh, you know, having the walnut trim around the zebra wood doors may not necessarily look that bad. I mean it kind of goes with yeah. the theme of what he's doing here. And
0: keep in mind that once you apply a finish to Wingy, it comes out really dark. Yeah, like oily
3: dark, dark, like motor oil dark.
0: Yeah, and because it's got such an open grain, it really sucks in the finish. That's why it ends up so dark like that. So if it looks good, like if the color balance looks right in in the raw wood, um, it might end up being a little heavy, a little dark and heavy
3: yeah I guess it depends on what a, it depends on what kind of effect he wants because i mean yeah he's got the zebra wood drawer fronts and this wrap of of uh if, let's say it was walnut walnut i find is a really nice color match um for the brown streaks that are in zebra wood mm-hmm. so so I think actually it's a great compliment, but if he's looking for something that makes a little more of a statement, that may get lost if the walnut uh, if the case is walnut too. Um, so maybe the, the wenge is a good option because he true. wants that darker trim to actually offset the drawers a little bit. Mm. So, I mean, it just kind of depends on what he wants. He could always use ebony.
5: Or, or you, yeah. maybe you could play he with spend a lot dyes more money. And, and figure it out that <laughs> oh, that's way. that's true, too, huh? Yeah, that's always – because I was – as as you guys are describing how, like, the wenge will darken and stuff like that, I immediately had a flashback, no comments, please, about when we went and we painted uh, uh, coffee mugs uh, with my daughter and my wife. And they said, no, maybe we can use this glaze. It's going to get darker and I'm like wait what? This is <laughs> so it's not going to stay pink. I like the pink.
3: <laughs> I like the what pink. Colors are going
5: to turn it's going to turn red. Oh, oh shoots. Always ruining your fun, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay,
3: so a third part of his question. I've read recommendations about creating, this is actually kind of cool for us to talk about. I'm interested to hear what you guys think. Um, Creating a sort of shop-made plywood for the drawer fronts in order to give the fronts stability, which would help the bead stay on the ends by reducing movement across the grain. It sounded good to me because it would help the bead stay on the end, and for the second reason that my wife wants the zebra wood to run vertically. I read that the minimum number of layers for this process is five Considering I was shooting for a half-inch thick maximum drawer front, it sounds like a pain because the veneers would have to be thin. What are your thoughts on this theory and is it re- required for drawer fronts that are, uh, I guess the largest one is about eight inches wide and three inches tall? Now, first of all, I'm going to just throw it out. Well, let me save that for the end because that kind of uh, overshadows the whole thing. But <laughs> if if he does this plywood thing, I mean, the whole point, if you're going to do do your own plywood, The idea is to get the wood veneers so thin that their movement negates, you know, whatever movement you have is negated.
4: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door.
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
3: By uh, the fact that it's glued up cross-grain with the other one, to, to get that right. to work, these things need to be thin. So the, th- the thickness of those veneers is extremely important into getting this whole thing to work in the first place, right? Okay. Yeah. and and he says five being the minimum at a half inch thick, well, I think from what I've heard and talking with folks like david marks who who do things with veneer a lot, eighth inch is kind of your maximum if you're looking to limit wood movement in terms okay. of thickness of a veneer. so if he goes mm. with eighth of an inch with five sheets, it's going to put him just over a half of an inch, um but he could get pretty close so i w- I don't think it's that unreasonable. If you're trying to do this method to thin your material down to just a little under an eighth of an inch, so you wind up with a half inch thick, uh, you know, sort of faux plywood thing.
5: Right. So, yeah, yeah, the eighth of an inch sounds right. That's what I was thinking too. Not that I've ever done it, but that just sounded really good. (laughs) What about like, I, I guess maybe I'm, I'm, the way I'm reading this, what about just using something like uh, um, uh, like an MDF in the middle or something? Using that as a layer.
3: Well, that's what I was going to ask. Why not just use plywood? He's he's wrapping yeah. the outside. Yeah,
0: you're banding the outside. You're veneering the front. I, you'd have to veneer the inside, but you know who cares? Right. Right. So
3: I don't see why why he wouldn't necessarily want to just do that for the sake of stability. He could run the grain of the outer veneer whatever orientation he wants to. It would have no impact. Um, and then he could trim it out as he wants to and it shouldn't be too much of a problem either. Um, So so that was going to be my suggestion that kind of negated the whole question in the first place, but I mean, maybe he just wants to have a challenge. Um, to, there you go. Yeah. There's nothing
5: wrong with that. Yeah, because I'm trying sure. to think. I'm like, well, Shannon, you, you, you've you been dealing a little bit more with the plywoods. I know you were kind of going through the grades and stuff like that, but I can't mm-hmm. imagine when I order cherry plywood or walnut plywood that the layers in, in between are all walnut or something similar, also. <laughs> right. It's usually just the face veneer. So that was my first thought. It was, well, why not just either take some regular plywood or some like some MDF, because that's really going to guarantee, you know, very minimal movement to like none. And so yeah, right. you know that that might be a, a really inexpensive way to do it because you can buy, you know, inexpensive but well-made uh, plywood or, you know, in the middle and then just get the really nice veneer front and, and save yourself a lot of time.
3: And imagine how much faster it would be yeah. you know, to make well, all these that's... little drawer fronts versus just cutting a piece of plywood down into a square. Right. Um, <laughs> well, the, the
0: accepted, kind of generally accepted, most stable sheet good material out there is a combi core plywood that is a combination mm, of my favorite. Um, a, a, f- a wood, fir, a poplar, and MDF. Um, You build that combination core um, platform and it gives you, you know, really, really smooth substrate to lay your veneer over top. But even then you're talking um, under an eighth of an inch, good plywood, good plywood. We're not Mm -hmm. talking Home Depot stuff here. Um, It's and even then, you know, you go to Home Depot, maybe three sixteenths of an inch. I mean, it's not that far off. It's just the, it's crappy wood that's been poorly dried. That's what causes (laughs) the issue there. But for the most part we're talking you know 30 seconds to you know not 30 second it's measured in 30 seconds, sometimes 60fourths of an inch to get the proper um, thickness of the the veneers that go inside the core itself. so yeah, yeah. I, I think you' you're dead on mark with the fact that it's going to be an eighth of an inch if not smaller than that so yeah. it, it all comes down to I think execution you know what is his tooling? Does he have a drum sander because it's really hard to cut veneers that size that can then be um, surface perfectly smooth and flat in order to put together. You can do it with a hand plane, certainly, but even that becomes a little difficult because they're so thin mm-hmm. and they buckle and bow on you. You have to kind of double stick tape them to your bench and go from there. So I, I don't know. It just depends on how much work you want to put into it. But to to use Mark's terminology to kind of overshadow the whole question, for a drawer front that's eight inches wide and three inches tall.
3: Not much movement there to begin with. I was going to say, no. <laughs> is it even necessary? You know, I mean, I appreciate,
0: I uh, who was it? I think it was Tom, uh, Tom Iovino that put up this post the other day. There are process woodworkers and there are, what did he call them? Guys that like the journey and guys that like the finished product. I'm very much a person who enjoys the journey. So I can respect the fact that maybe he wants the challenge. Don't he wants to try this out.
3: believe
0: <laughs> That journey? But seriously?
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Seriously, like eight that. inches wide and three inches tall, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's,
3: that's, that's not going to have too much movement to begin with. I, and
0: and walnut, walnut in and of itself is a relatively stable wood, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so three inches tall right there, assuming that he's dealing with flat sawn pieces of wood, that three-inch dimension is all that matters. You know, the eight-inch dimension is irrelevant because that's along the length of the grain. So yep. the only movement you're going to have is across that three inches unless right. you put a quarter sawn piece there and then you carry even less. But so. then
3: he's also got a little bit of a concern with the um, the end grain, you know, gluing that trim onto the end grain and whether or not that's going to be a bond that that will last. And that's kind of his, his fourth part of the question is um, what kind of glue would you recommend for something like this? And I guess if he's, I guess it kind of just depends on what he's doing. Um, you know, even in a small drawer like that though, um, you know, put enough glue on there so that you get it, give it enough so that the end grain can suck it in but there's still some left when it's all said and done. Um, right. You know, you still might, especially for just the jewelry box situation, you know, a drawer front on a jewelry box, we're not talking about a a kitchen cabinet or something that gets a, a lot of use and a lot of wear and tear. So it's still, you know, just to the end grain, if you you did go with solid wood, it still might still work, you know, for, for what right. it is.
0: Well, when it comes to veneer in general, <clears throat> hide glue. Um, just because of the fact that veneers you um you put glue on one face of the veneer. Glue has moisture in it. Glue will turn that veneer into a pit, potato chip in seconds. Mm-hmm. So now you'd use your high glue and you paint you paint both sides of the veneer to try to control that. And high glue does not interfere with finishes, people. <laughs> so you've got an you've got a little bead around the edge out of a somewhat splintery and fragile wood to begin with you've got a decorative veneer on the front. Now imagine putting PVA glue in there and the squeeze out that you're going to have to clean up around that delicate edged bead Use high glue. Don't worry about it. Blue tape, you know. Clean it up a little blue bit. Blue tape. But high glue. It's not. Why? Well, yeah, yeah. Whatever.
5: You're taking all the fun out blue of tape. it. I mean, <laughs> the strategy to get it going. And, I it, mean, in this just, instance,
0: Mark, I think the high glue is even the lazier man's
5: version than the blue tape version. I
3: don't just know, man. Are you going over there and warming up your little glue pot, your glue pot, and uh, putting on your leader hosen or whatever you wear when you use that stuff? And then somebody yes. comes in and mistakes <laughs> yes. Yes. The, the hide
5: glue for, like, you know, a caramel mo- macchiato, and there's all of that sort of issue. Well, they, they, and,
3: there's a good argument to be made for using hide glue on just about everything, you know. I mean, just in general, in theory, there's a lot of good reasons to use it if you want to get into that world of, of adhesive. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to throw just
5: the warping of the veneer, I think,
3: yeah. just controlling yeah. that a little yeah. I'm, I'm just going to
5: throw one little thing out there, which is probably going to be like blasphemy of blasphemy, but uh, with with the bead on the edges there. Um, if if you're really overly concerned about it, which is it's understandable, um, I, I, there's nothing wrong with maybe shooting a little Brad or something in there, or nailing a little Brad in 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 position and kind of covering that up a little bit, just to give it a mechanical. Uh, uh, mechanism to hold on to. Uh I know that most people right now are probably. Yeah, like,
3: you know, wah. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you
5: you know can't say anything nice. Don't say anything at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> you know, you know. I'm
3: thinking what I would actually do with this is I would go with um, if I could try to find like a three eighths of an inch sheet good, uh, and then I would use my own shop made um, veneer with the the zebra wood. Uh, just go under a, a little bit under an eighth so that when it's all said and done, the sandwich is about a half inch thick. Then the other cool thing about that is you get the additional, you know, uh, for the for the end grain, what would be the end grain, your, uh, your zebra wood is now running vertically. So technically right. when you glue on that trim on the outside, you are actually getting a long grain to long grain glue bond on the, that very thin veneer strip um. So for something, again, as, you know, as un uh, I don't want to say it doesn't have to be super durable, but it, it really doesn't for a jewelry box. I just don't think it's going to be that much of a, a problem. But the the veneers on plywood and on that, you'll what half of the veneers are going in the right direction. Right. To give you a, yep. a long ring glue bond. So, you know, it's probably not as big of a deal as, as we might make it out to be.
5: Yeah, because you're not grabbing onto those sides to open the drawer. They're just kind of hanging there. So there's there's not a lot of stress. It's not it depends something Depends on how like, badly I'm, you want that jewelry.
3: <laughs> that this thing get my bracelet get my bracelet now all right uh let's go into a couple of voicemails here we've got uh, the first one from nathan he's concerned about polyurethane flammability
2: hi matt mark and shannon it's nathan from sydney australia here i'm a new woodworker i'm just getting caught up in all of your
3: awesome shows um i've got a question about finishing um I've done an easel for my wife, and I want to finish it probably with some polyurethane. And I've been reading that um, there's this little problem with polyurethane called, um, I don't know, spontaneous combustion, burn your house down. So um, if you can help me to avoid that, I'm not quite sure what to do. I've seen something
2: about laying the rag out on the floor after you're done. But other than that, I'm
3: not really quite sure. If you can give me any guidance, that would be great. Thank you. All right, so polyurethane flammability. Um this this is kind of interesting because in general, the advice just to kind of, I don't know, just sort of generically explain what the the safety concern is, I usually just tell people look if it's oil-based, you know, do the whole letting the rag and and everything dry in a single layer so it doesn't catch fire. Um, But in reality, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, guys, it really is the oils, the things that contain things like boiled linseed oil and tongue oil, the things that cure by an exothermic reaction, but one that takes a long time. So you have a slow smoldering buildup of heat that then can ignite. That doesn't really necessarily happen with a polyurethane. Um, to, To my knowledge, it will actually cure within a few hours. You don't necessarily get that slow smoldering Uh, potential for burning. I I don't want to give out bad information on that but that's the way that I've always understood it but just to be safe I always tell people I don't care whether you're using armor seal or Danish oil or just straight boiled linseed oil put those rags in a single layer lay them out and let them dry because a lot of people don't necessarily know exactly what they're using so so let's just cover all bases and say anything that's oil based treat it this way. Um, But what do you think about the polyurethane in general? I mean do, do you agree that that's going to usually dry before there's any real uh, ignition risk or am I wrong there?
5: I've, I've have yet to have an issue and polyurethane is pretty much my go-to finish that I use. I mean, I I hate, I know a lot of people hate to hear that, but that's exactly what I go to. And um, I've had them sitting in a pile, not quite a pile, a couple of them sitting on top of each other, definitely not laid out nice and flat. They're usually just kind of crumpled up and off to the side in my shop. And I have yet to have, anything burst into flame so to me that's like one of those the thought never really crossed my mind that it, w- it would be an issue or a potential fire hazard because well, it's just never happened
3: yeah what do you think shannon do you, do you know anything about that you know I, I i'm just gonna second what you
0: said mark because i i think you're right i think <clears throat> with polyurethane some of the 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 dryers and the things like that that cause that exothermic reaction, which, by the way, I will to compliment you on your word painting there. An exothermic smoldering buildup of heat was quite poetic.
3: <laughs> I painted a, a, well, quite a picture. It was very onomatopoetic. <laughs> I appreciated that. Anyway. Too bad um, it wasn't on purpose, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He in, had me exothermic.
0: In practice, I lay out that rag on the concrete floor for everything. I even do it with shellac. You know, not because I'm so much worried about it, but frankly, because it just dries the rag out faster and I can right. pick it up and throw it away. Right. Um, you know, crumpling it up in a ball and sticking it up in the corner, it will never dry um, with some of these oils and, and even with some of the polyurethane. That and it's really cool to kind of peel it off the concrete floor and get that kind of thing that you can use <laughs> as a Frisbee now. Right. So f- for the most part, I do it with everything. Even stuff that I know, like shellac. Shellac does not, well, as far as I know, shellac does not combust. But again, here's the thing with finishing: is you don't know. You know, you don't even know what's in the can based on what you buy. Um, you know, different manufacturers use different things, so you have no idea what's in the can. So, it, just as a general rule of thumb, safety measure, I lay out the rag on the concrete floor, no matter what I use.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't really want to tempt fate and balling yeah, it exactly. up and balling it up and throwing it into a pile of wood shavings. You know, just to be safe is is probably not a good idea. Um, but I think, but if he's really concerned about just general, you know, generally speaking, am I going to burn my house down by using polyurethane? It kind of just use common sense, you know, and really, like you said, no finish rag should really just be balled up and thrown right. into something that could easily catch fire just to be on the safe side. Because if you have that habit, then it doesn't matter what you're using. You're always doing this as part of your uh, yeah. drying and disposal process.
0: Well, I mean, look at it this way. Polyurethane, and again, I have no data to back this up, but it's got to be one of the most popular finishes out there. Yeah. When you think about the DIY set, you know, that's what people use is polyurethane. Mm-hmm. And they probably don't know that it's going to combust. Right. You know, do you, do you hear, it seems to me, if polyurethane were an issue, we would hear of a lot more house fires well, starting from this. From, yeah. You know, Joe, Joe Average, homeowner who goes out and buys whatever's on the shelf
5: at the big box store. You well, know? and it's,
3: it's when they grab a can of boiled linseed oil that they're in for a surprise about how right. dangerous that is. Right. Yeah.
5: See, one of my things has always been when I get done with, oftentimes I use the same exact brush because I'm cheap. So I will <laughs> simply take the brush and either put it and wrap it in plastic or like in Reynolds wrap or something like that in my attempt to keep it fresh. And, um, I'm definitely not one of those people. I, I have such bad form when it comes to taking care of my, <laughs> my finishing tools that um, I just simply wrap it in those. And it seems like if polyurethane were going to be combustible, I'm pretty sure – Wrapping it in a tight, you know, air airtight kind of a bag probably wouldn't really help to dry it out very well. Maybe I don't know, but I'm still it seems trying like to figure out. Point... I'm still trying to figure out how
3: you turned a one-syllable word like fresh into two syllables. Oh, it's easy
5: for fresh. For fresh, <laughs> I just uh, accented on the wrong syllable. <laughs> that, was that was also quite onomatopoetic.
3: Jeez, we're on a roll here tonight.
5: For <laughs> right. right. so, I wish um... I could say onomatopoetic. Mm-hmm. I just like saying it. All it's right, onomatopoetic. Like... Oh, it's good. very exothermic.
3: <laughs> All right, we're going to move on here. Uh, Aaron has a question, and um, let's see. Where is it here? He wants to know about uh, what, what woods are decent for hand playing practice.
2: Hi, guys. Um, glad to see that you guys are going to be on a regular schedule. I'm looking forward to it. Um, since you didn't have too many questions to be asked on this last episode, Well, I figure I will give you guys a question. Um, I am a new woodworker. I am wanting to learn how to plane um, and use my hand planes properly and what have you. My question is just to practice around the shop, not necessarily on a project, but, you know, practice edge face um, using my planes. What is a good wood to use to practice, to, I guess, test myself, say, okay, if I can do it on this wood, then the majority of most other wood should be a breeze. Um, that is my question. My name is Aaron, and uh, I hope to hear from you guys soon. Thank you.
3: All right, this one, this one is easy. I'm going to say either quilted maple yes. or wenge. One um, of those two, I think, would be good to start with. Damn, he took my answers. <laughs> All right, so Does you guys. Anyone are-
0: else have a have a feeling of like an Alcoholics Anonymous thing there? My name is Aaron, and I listen to Wood Talk
3: Online. <laughs> oh, he's admitting it. He's admitting the problem. That's the first step. Um, so you guys are more into the the hand tool thing for the most part than I am. What um, What woods do you think are good practice? Because here's the thing. You know, if you use something that's too forgiving, is that necessarily a good practice wood? That's not really setting you up for success on the more difficult wood. So, so what do you recommend someone practice on?
0: Oh, I think there's actually two questions there, because you know, my my first answer is whatever's cheap because you're yes. practicing. You're you
3: practicing. Know, whatever well, you can get there's practicing your skills, right? And then there's right. there's refining your skills around the type of wood you're using.
0: Right. If he's new to woodworking and he wants to learn how to plane, I don't recommend learning how to plane by testing yourself with, uh, if I can do it on this wood, because you're just going to get frustrated. Right. right. You know, and and actually, Mark, you're right. Give him a nice quilted maple. If you can plane that, you can plane anything, but you're not going to do a very good job if you've never done it before. Right. Um, It's just going to lead to frustration at that point. Sure. You know, um, poplar i mean you can go to any any big box store you can buy it relatively cheaply Um, and actually probably i I mean answering with pine because that actually if you can plane pine well then you can plane most other woods well Softwoods are much more difficult to deal with i think they they will turn up beautiful you know shavings when the grain is agreeable but most of the time i think it's actually harder to plane you know your two by four than it is poplar and
3: same thing with um well, with chisel work, I find it more difficult in softwoods okay. because you get all the, the crushed fibers as yeah. opposed to like a nice clean severed fiber. So it makes yeah. it a little more tricky there too.
5: Right. That, that's pretty much how I've always done. My thing has always been whatever I've had laying around, which typically tends to be pine poplar. Um, I'm trying to think of at the Lee Nielsen hand tool events, what is the wood that they typically use for the vast majority of cherry. the, the – cherry? it like, cherry? Yeah, because it's the, the ones like I got your yeah, it's like, I think like maple's been in there, you know, and these, uh, the vast majority of it for myself, when I've done my my test cuts, kind of like what he was describing, that like just practicing, a lot of it is just my, my scraps that I have on hand and they're, you know, yeah. it's just whatever I've been working with, because to me, it makes more sense to work with the woods that you're most likely to be working with.
0: Ingo. You know, and, and going yeah, from point.
5: there because yeah, because you, you you could be working with the quilted maple all the time, and if you have absolutely zero experience with it, well, that's a really bad example, actually. <laughs> but uh, but at the same, like if you're going to be working with uh, maple all the time, but yet the only thing you practice on is pine, man, you're going to have a hell of an awakening when it comes to it, because there is definitely uh, a difference between them, uh, at least as far as I'm concerned. And so that you know, that's always. If you can get some offcuts of what you're working with, so that you're not maybe not wasting the, the really good stuff or something, mm-hmm. uh, that's a good way to go for it and, and, and kind of get your practice there. But I mean, and, th- and that's only based on my experience. Like I said, it's whatever I've had laying around, and it's it's been everything from a really nice piece of maple to the two by four, just simply because I wanted to. Uh, I needed to get away because the TV was so bad that we had previously. But that's <laughs> not going to be happening anymore. So. No more woodworking for Matt. <laughs> yeah, that's I, right. I think it's safe to say
0: that. Just about any domestic species. Now I, I'm I'm assuming that he's in North America, just based upon <laughs> the accent. Um, he, you can get a, hand tools are, are pretty much agreeable with most of the domestic species. There's always the unusual ones, but even then, I mean, hickory is hard, but hickory planes quite well. You know. Yeah. Um, There's very few domestic woods that are a real pain in the butt to deal with. It's the figured version of those domestic woods that ends up causing issues. But again, Matt, I think, hit it right on the the head there. If you're never going to work with this species, this strange, unusual species, or if you are, it's used as a tiny little accent, you know, what good is it going to help you to learn how to plane that (laughs) wood if you're just not going to use it that much? If you can't afford it on a regular basis, it's not good practice wood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
3: Good points, gents. All right, let's move on to Brad's question. He has a question about Ebony.
5: And I have a... Hey, guys. No,
3: just Ebony, just Ebony. Oh, sorry. Hey, guys.
4: This is Brad from Knoxville, Tennessee. I've been listening to the podcast for about a month or so, and I'm going through all of the episodes in succession. I'm still about 20 episodes behind the current one, but listening to them this fast, I've been amazed to see your broadcasting skills and the program itself mature, kind of like looking at that guy who photographed himself every day and time-lapsed it. Uh, anyway, I love the show. Uh, my question is about ebony. Uh, I've lately been captivated by the green and green style, uh, particularly that as uh, interpreted by Daryl Peart. Uh, so I went and decided to buy some ebony and discovered that uh, there are actually many varieties of ebony, and nothing is just called ebony, period. Um but none of the uh, uh, green and green sources that I've read really indicate which particular variety uh, that Daryl and others like him use. Uh, do you know what kind of ebony this is? Uh, and as a second question, uh, during my search I found some Brazilian ebony at my local supplier. Uh, it's not solid black like the pictures of what I've seen in the green and green, uh, but as the patina on this particular variety cures, has these very beautiful black and brown stripes. Um, I bought some for a different project and um, was wanting to know if I could try some of the polishing techniques on, on this. Uh, do you know if this particular type of ebony will polish and pillow uh, to make the plugs that Daryl uses? Uh, if it does, I think the black and brown stripes would make a really neat touch on uh the green and green style, anyway, Keep up the great show. I look forward to hearing the answer bye bye all
3: right let's go to the the wood guy on this one, Shannon. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but generally we're talking about uh gabon ebony for this right yes and yes. and looking at the Brazilian ebony, the brown that he's talking about is i mean the thing the thing with the green and green stuff is. It's that pitch black, almost, I mean, I hate to say it, almost looks like plastic in a way uh, that really makes it awesome. So are you familiar with um, the Brazilian ebony that he's talking about?
0: Yeah, actually, um, and it's not an ebony, but we'll get to that in a second. Ebony, um, I don't know the exact pronunciation, but it's uh, the Diospyros family or genus is is ebony. There's a bunch of different ebony's: Macassar ebony, Madagascar ebony. Those are not the same. There's yeah. Gaboon ebony. The ebony we're talking about is East African ebony, um, ebony that comes from um, the Madagascar region. That's why I say don't mix up Macassar ebony and Madagascar ebony. They're two different things. Macassar ebony comes from India. Um, Madagascar ebony, or sometimes um, from the Gaboon province, I think is where the the gaboon name comes from that's East African ebony. That's the stuff we're talking about. It's very pitch black. It polishes extraordinarily well because there's practically no grain pattern to this. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's where that plastic thing comes from Brazilian ebony. And and this is kind of like the finishing industry. Um, people love to give names to some of these species because frankly, who wants to call it, you know, Swartzia laxiflora because that's what Brazilian ebony is that doesn't sell as well. Um, and people know what ebony is. You know, it's just like Brazilian cherry. Brazilian cherry is jatoba. A lot of people have trouble. Is it jatoba, jatoba? Oh, but people know what cherry is. It's called it Brazilian cherry. And a lot of times it's the flooring, the hardwood flooring industry that does this. They mm. rename things. Um, you ever picked up that can of tongue oil? <laughs> and There's no <laughs> tongue oil in there. Right. That's what we're talking about here. So ebony has has gotten this the same thing has happened to it. Um, so generally when you hear, you see a wood species that has like Brazilian ebony or Brazilian walnut or African mahogany, it's generally not what that wood is. It's, it's marketing spin. African mahogany is not mahogany. Um, Technically, somewhere up the the chain, and it's in the same family as mahogany, but it's a totally different genus and certainly a different species. Brazilian ebony is exactly the same thing. The issue with Brazilian ebony is it does have a pronounced grain pattern. To me, it looks similar to wingy. Um, it's not a splintery and and but that that brown and black kind of striation that you see in wingy. That's what Brazilian ebony looks like to me. Now, when you put finish on it, it's going to come out pretty darn black, but I think the grain pattern is a little more open than the gaboon ebony or the Madagascar ebony that um while it will probably come out and look just fine, because let's be honest, we're talking about little tiny pegs, green and green pegs. Yeah. You know, um, you're isolating that grain pattern to such a small area that you're not going to really notice it. But I think it's still gonna be a little too porous for you to get that kind of highly polished pillowed effect. Right. Um yeah, I mean, you're
3: you're really polishing it pretty high. Like any reasonably right. dense wood, and especially one that's dense and oily, um, is going to lend itself well to that. But you can't you can't hide the pore structure, you know. Right. And that's what always a pore structure or grain lines always is what kills a high gloss surface. Um, so so yeah, it might there might be an issue there. But like you said, it's so it's so small. The effect right. from a distance will still be the same. But
0: So I recommend he needs to look for Gaboon ebony. That's a pretty common naming, um, or at least African ebony. Um, And East Indian ebony, uh, Macassar ebony, will give you a little bit of that variation, but you also can get a pretty black, consistent black-colored ebony from India. The only issue is, is it's CITES protected, and it's somewhat illegal to get. So you can get it, but just be careful. Talk to the folks at Gibson Guitar about East Indian ebony, and yeah. well, you <laughs> how, know how they're doing with that lawsuit. You
3: need you need so little of it that I, I usually just recommend people buy turning blanks.
0: Exactly, you know they'll yeah. come
3: covered in wax, and you'll have to chop them up. But you get so much out of it if you cut it into sticks and you make all your little plugs and, and stuff like that. So it's not hard to find them. You could get that at Rockler if you needed to. Yeah, you know, you might pay a little bit more for it there, but uh, <laughs> you could certainly buy it if you want. But uh, and even pen blank stock is used for that. But I just get like a. I don't know, like a 12-inch um, uh, spindle blank uh, made right. out of ebony is uh, fairly inexpensive and it's exactly what you need. You still have to watch out. Even in those, you'll still have that light brown streaking uh, that you yeah. have to be careful of. And, and and he did mention that that might be a, a good thing for green and green. And I, I guess it's a matter of opinion, but when I want to go green and green, I want to try to match exactly what I've seen uh, in the green and green pieces. And I've only seen that just stark, sort of dark black 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 color like there's no brown streaks or anything so i try to avoid that streaking as much as possible um yeah. just to to get the desired effect so but there's so you know there there certainly is room for someone to interpret it differently i know people who who use walnut um because they have some on hand and it's cheaper or they might even try to use like maple and diet black <laughs> to yeah, do their, I, their, their ebony
5: i was gonna say i have i have my favorite ebony source which is um the Sanford Sharpie. Uh, sometimes I use the <laughs> fine point. I've been known to use the little bit thicker one. Uh, and that seems to give me a very nice black kind of a color to my wood. And uh nice. I'm very happy with it.
3: <laughs> very nice. All right. Um, we got another one here. Our final one. This is from Daniel. And I had to cut off the beginning of his voicemail because um, it, it was like cutting in and out. So this kind of starts in the middle of a sentence here.
1: And uh, just wanted to give you either... Well, I wanted to tell you my scenario this week, and I wanted to ask you a question. Uh, This week, I'm building a wine cellar made out of some rustic barn boards. The very top of the cabinet is just a (laughs) big X shape uh, to support all the wine bottles. And uh, due to the uh, length of the cabinet, I had two particular cabinet boxes that I, I had bevel cuts to make for this X. And uh, they exceeded what my equipment could do. My either my table saw, uh, adjusting you know the blade all the way as far as I could, and cutting a bevel cut on my sled, and even my compound miter saw. So I wanted to ask you guys in a scenario where you have a bevel cut that is more than let's say 48 degrees, uh, what are some some particular techniques that you might have in making that cut, because I found myself in this spot and I just thought, man, this is the only time I wish I had a radio arm saw, but uh, due to the scenario and the size of my shop. I'm like, well, I'm not going to buy one just because of this, but uh, there's gotta be, there's gotta be an easier way. So anyway, I look forward to hearing your answer and I'll talk to you soon.
3: All right. So can you guys envision what, what the situation is here? For the
5: most part, um, i I've so tried so. not to, but yeah.
3: <laughs> you're, you're looking at like the X pattern that you get inside of a, a wine cabinet or you know, right, like a right. shoe divider sort so of thing. So he's cutting like a half lap, in other words? Uh, no, he just basically is doing a bevel on the end of a board and think of that X pattern inside of a case. So where right. the, the top of the X piece needs to make contact with the top oh, right. of the case, okay. you got to cut it on a bevel. The, the angle of that bevel is exceeding what his table saw can do. Right. Um and and I talked to to Dan about this just to get some clarification and he said that he doesn't have a um what do you call it a raised panel jig like you might use if you want to run the piece vertically over the table saw mm-hmm. um and frankly that was going to be my suggestion like if, <laughs> if if I'm in that situation that's the only thing I could really you know reasonably think to do to get the angle right is to turn the workpiece 90 degrees and then put my you know fence at the right bevel angle um it would be worth building some sort of a jig to accomplish that, I think. Um but I will say the pieces, he sent me a picture, they're fairly large. And okay. and doing that method, the bigger those pieces get, the scarier that process gets. Big right. as in long? Uh yes, long. So you're looking I guess it
0: doesn't really matter, wide or long.
3: Yeah, well I guess I'd be probably happier with a wide piece than a tall piece. Right. Um right. but but either way, it's a little unruly so let 's let 's just assume because that 's one good way to handle that in most cases let 's assume that 's not on the menu. What else could you do uh, to accurately create that bevel um, with some level of precision because he 's obviously going to have multiple uh, of these to do like what other alternative is there?
5: My first thought immediately went to uh, again creating some sort of jig or some sort of shim system where you could maybe. Uh, alternately go to, say, a circular saw or something, because obviously a circular saw is going to have the same limitation with uh, with, with being able to go beyond 45 degrees typically. But it seems like that would be a, a much easier to come up with some sort of set it down on top of the piece of material you're working with hmm. and have some sort of shim that would raise it just enough because, say, he's going to 48 degrees. You just need somehow to raise that, like shim it up just a little bit So whether it was a matter of putting a shim, say, on the bottom of the faceplate of the the saw itself, the circular saw, or well, that seems like it'd be the easiest, or have maybe another, like a jig or something where you could raise it up a little bit that way and and make the cut, you know, just enough. Because I I was thinking, like, you know, if I was doing my miter saw, and occasionally I have had, for some reason, um, a cut that I need to make that went just a little bit beyond what was the capability of my saw to make that, that angle. And it's been a matter, occasionally, of taking some some shims, putting them behind the piece, between the piece and the fence, and getting it secure. And this always makes me nervous, like, unbelievably when I go to do this, but I'm sure you could easily come up with some sort of, again, a, a jig with just a slight angle on it so you have a solid reference face to push it up against.
3: Well, he say, he did mention using a sled, so maybe even just, you know, using it to prop up one end on a sled yeah. and clamp everything in place so it can't move
5: yeah, uh-huh. take, it, t- take it to, like, a, you know, the 45 degrees, if that's, like, the maximum angle he can get, and then figure out, yeah, if he can somehow, using his sled uh-huh. to raise it just a little bit more, shim it up to take it that final couple of degrees, yeah. because obviously it's going to be a lot safer to, say, maybe put the, the saw blade at 45 and raise it two or three degrees versus, you know, trying to come up with another jig, we're going to raise it all the way up, although... You know, a raised panel jig is really nice to have. <laughs> yeah, it is.
3: Huh. But then I guess it would take a little bit of fiddling with the the settings to make sure you get a consistent angle, obviously, because if right. it doesn't get the angle right, then it's not going to marry well to the top of the case. But that's, I, that's I an think interesting if you
0: if you've got that, that crosscut sled idea though, you know, and then feed the blade through the crosscut sled, assuming your crosscut sled will take a 45 degree blade, you probably have right. to cut a separate hole in there. Right. But it seems to me that, you know, Matt, Matt's kind of nailed it. You know, you put a little, a shim. Once you figure out that angle, you know, you can put a shim and a stop block attached to your, your, um, sled Mm -hmm. and you can get that angle repeatable. I'm going to say that I
3: completely agree with Matt. Yeah. Oh
5: my God. This has
3: never happened.
0: (laughs) But, but you also, you started to allude to this Matt at the beginning, the idea of a circular saw, um, now, again, it depends on the kind of circular saw you have. If it's a crappy circular saw, you might end up doing more work cleaning up the cut you just Oy, made. But yeah. That's very that good. Be, no, if you've got a nice, you know, I think we're all track saw owners now.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um. We, uh, you know, might Is that a gloat, I, Shannon? Oh, totally. I love that thing. It's like <laughs> the coolest thing that I bought. Ever and ever. you heard that from the... Uh, from the hand Over Seriously. the hand-tolder. Festool, you listening? You make a good product. That's awesome. <laughs> but, you know, you could... You could put the, um, you could actually attach the shim to the bottom of the plate on the saw,
2: mm. there you and go. raise
0: the saw that extra couple of degrees and make it that way. But you, you guys know what I'm going to answer on this. I mean, if you can see the line, you can
5: saw the line. Yeah, I, I, I suddenly envisioned like a very long, like one of those donkey ears or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> you would have the. I envision talking.
3: I just envision a lot of cleanup. But,
0: but I, I don't know. I mean, if you've got a, you've got a bevel gauge and you can capture that angle and lock your bevel gauge in place, um, you know, you mark that line, mark the bevel line on the edge of your board on both edges of the board and saw it off, scrub plane it off, whatever close to that line, and then totally refine it with a hand plane, use a, a marking gauge so that you've got knife lines on there and plane right to that. You can get incredibly accurate that way. And that way, if there is any variation um, in that case from piece to piece, it's just a matter of taking the reading straight off the piece and going from there. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I've done it several times. It's it's just really not that difficult. I did this on a live hand tool school session the other day, cut a 45-degree bevel angle on a – somebody wanted to um, kind of after the fact apply a track to the Rubo bench mm-hmm. for the dead man to run on, and he was wondering – how would I go about cutting that little pyramidal shape and attaching it on? And you mark out a 45 degree angle on the end. You transfer those lines to the edge of the face with a knife and then you plane to those lines and you can get really, really accurate. And if I'm envisioning these pieces, right, they're not that wide, right? I mean, they're,
3: they look like, uh, like as far as, well, it's cabinet width. So, you know, you're looking, okay. at, we're talking about depth here. Um, 18 inches, <clears throat> probably no more than 18. Okay.
0: I mean, you could do that. It just depends, I guess, on how many he has to do. I mean, that's kind of the hand tool argument. If you have one to do, hand tools, I would even say a couple to do. Hand tools are the obvious solution, in my opinion.
3: The picture he sent me had like two cabinets in it, but I don't know whether okay. those were two in a set or, you know, and each one of them has at least uh, two, you know, to make the X, you've got two cross members and each one of them has a top and bottom that needs the angles. So for one cabinet, right. you're looking at four bevels, two cabinets, eight bevels.
0: Once you set that bevel angle, you know, you can run the bevel all the way down the board and the minute you get a bump, you know, you've got a little bit of wood to remove there and it really doesn't shouldn't take that long.
5: We, uh, you know, I, I can see it both ways. I mean, I have done exactly what you've described, Shannon, on a couple of pieces where I did, you know, just just to prove to myself that I could do it. I, I have done yeah. it, and it has it's been not very hard. effective. No, it's it's not really. And it, it's it, when you haven't done it before, it is a little nerve wracking. But you're right. I mean, you, you set those lines up, you see them, you know exactly where you're working to, and right. you you can correct it a little bit. One thing I just want to point out that even using the hand tool or maybe coming with the circular saw, both ideas are you're actually tilting the tool to get to that angle, you know, it's yeah, just a little bit easier with the, the, uh, uh, with, with, the hand plane. One more thought I had, you know, I was just thinking about this. I don't know if, uh, uh Daniel has a, a jointer or not, but I know my jointer fence can definitely go a little bit more beyond 45 than sometimes I want. Cause then it's like, damn it. I wanted 45. What are you doing at this angle? So I got to come back in. So I almost <laughs> thought about like, what if he cut the, uh, say 45, his maximum angle on his table saw and then came back in and only had to remove just a little bit more, with with the jointer i mean it's still a little awkward you know
3: the problem there is the end grain it's
5: gonna say it's oh, on the end grain isn't yeah it? The end grain <clears throat> yeah that can oh, be scary end grain stupid end grain stupid end grains when i uh
3: when i did way back on my first guild build i did the shaker table and i did two versions one that was more uh hand tool focused and the other was more power tool focused um i did exactly that with the top because that top gets that nice undercut bevel uh, mm-hmm. You know, that's exactly the same situation. You either have to use the raised panel jig or you use hand planes. Uh, the hand plane version that I did was with Cherry. And frankly, it was fun doing it that way, you know, making these long, wide bevels. Not difficult. It was a lot of fun. And the
5: truth <laughs> shall set you free. But, Mr. Saw man. But, uh, seriously,
3: am I talking out of both
0: sides of my mouth or what? <laughs> but,
3: but the other thing that Dan um, uh, mentioned is he's using old gnarly uh, fairly difficult to work with barnwood oh, okay. to do this project too, which you know could very well uh, raise a few issues if he's if he is going to go the hand tool route too. So mm-hmm. just something to think about. But I mean, really, that's that's there's not many other choices, right? I mean, there's only so well, many ways you can do it. One of the yeah. one of
0: the things that that when when I thought of this this hand tool school idea it was again not as a you know you shouldn't use power tools sell all your power tools it's situations like this when the tooling won't help you and actually chris schwartz wrote a great blog on this today and he said don't let your machines enslave you enslave your machines
3: until they rise up and, and rebel deep. and take over the world yeah, exactly. My machines that don't
5: say Skynet on them. So I'm saying, <laughs> yet, yet, that they will, you know, they'll, they'll work on each other eventually.
3: <laughs> no, and I agree. There, there's definitely something to that. They, they tend to be problem solvers. When all else fails and you can't figure out any other way to do it, there's usually a very simple, hand tool focused way of doing it if you've got the skill set to, uh, to make it happen. Of course, we're completely neglecting the most obvious answer: CNC machine. <laughs>
0: there you go! Wow, you just totally read my mind. <laughs> yeah, just pull that what? right out of the closet,
3: set it up, put the piece it's, in there, you'll be fine.
0: It's that one or, that folds down, goes under the bed, right next to
3: the total gym. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, doesn't or, or Rockler, or, doesn't Rockler sell those little like mini CNC Shark things, little tiny things, yeah. <laughs> little bench top models?
5: Uh, the other the other final option is just to completely redesign everything so that it is within the 45 <laughs> degrees That's that's the the route i would have gone go.
3: yeah so matt, <laughs> matt suggests the do over
0: yes um, all and right for the record i just got a direct message via the chat room and vic agrees with me it's a
5: hand tool job so. uh well i have certain feelings about vic so I'll just get that <laughs> nice
3: good old vic all right well uh i think that really does it for us guys um anything else we need to cover before we go I think we're good. Nice. Good show. Almost an hour and a half, dude. Let's close this. Let's pinch this thing (laughs) off.
5: Matt, do your thing. Okay. Uh oh, this thing. Uh, (laughs) So let's see. As always, if you uh if you there's a few different ways you can get a hold of us if you ever have a comment, a question, or a suggestion about something you've heard today in today's show, or maybe something you'd like to hear on an upcoming episode. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. Con? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I better I really go buy really that.
3: People. Does that exist? <laughs> <.com>. <laughs> okay.
5: Or you can call and leave us a voicemail, like many of our, our listeners did today, at 623-242-5180. Don't forget, you can Skype us at Wood Talk Online. And check out our individual sites, matsbasenworkshop.com, Renaissance renaissancewoodworker.com. And come over and visit us at woodtalkonline.com, where you may get a quicker answer to your question, probably from people who might actually know the answer.
3: Hmm. Wonderful. Huh. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for the chat room, who we, uh, until the last second there, ignored this whole time. Uh, <laughs> but we appreciate you being there, and we'll, uh, we'll have to catch you next time.
5: That's right. See you, everybody.
3: Thanks.
0: thanks for the questions and the voicemails, guys. You make the show so much easier when you do that. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> yeah. We didn't
3: start the planning of the show until about like 1 o'clock this afternoon, my time. So um, keep those questions coming, because it makes that thing... It makes the show happen. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it, it pushes it
5: off <laughs> to an hour and a half. So that's true. More Just content. Not so many questions next time. Otherwise, we're gonna we're gonna have another one of those shows where Mark will go. If you could, would you use a handsaw <laughs> or a power saw? What
3: way? I know. I know Shannon will like that one. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Have a wonderful woodworking week, and we'll catch you next time. See ya. Bye.
2: Studios Network. For
0: more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio programs so good, it's like
4: you're there! Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods